0: Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Today, it's a slightly different episode from normal, as it was recorded in person at our Insight 222 studio in London. Since the pandemic, we haven't had many, if any, in person podcast recordings, so it was great to be able to sit down and talk with Tanush Kapilashrami, Group Head of HR and Chief Human Resources Officer at Standard Chartered Bank, about the bank's work around talent mobility. Standard Chartered Bank is doing some really inspiring work in the people space and as internal mobility and talent marketplaces is something that a lot of organizations are looking at right now. This is a powerful conversation for those looking for examples of success to learn from. So in today's episode I'm excited to discuss not only how one of the biggest banks in the world is approaching the era of a skills-based organization but also how the company and its employees have responded to the shift towards skills. My conversation with Tanush will also cover the role of the Chief Human Resources Officer and the skills HR professionals need to develop in order to successfully drive change to a more agile culture, how Tanush got buy-in from the C-suite, and what the next steps are for the bank to fully embrace a skills-led approach to talent, and much more. So please join me for my conversation with Tanush. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. Um, Last time you were on, it was 2019, and as I was saying, right at the early stages of of, of the podcast, actually, I think it was uh, about the 15th episode or something like that. Um, For those listeners who may not have listened to that episode in in 2019, I do recommend you do. By the way, uh, could you please give a brief introduction to you and your role at Standard Chartered Bank?
1: Thank you first for having me back, David. I did jump at the opportunity when I got the invite uh, from you. I I uh, had a fantastic conversation in 2019, and depending on where we go, I'll make some references to some of the things we spoke about and how many of them actually came true uh, over the last few years. So delighted to be back. Um, I am the the head of human resources, the CHRO at Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, it's a British headquartered emerging markets bank, so we are in 50-plus markets in Asia, Africa, Middle East, serving customers in 150 markets. Yep. It's a whole range of banking services, uh, from uh, consumer, individual consumer banking to wholesale investment banking. Uh, it's a 160-year-old bank, you know, deeply rooted uh, in some of the communities uh, where, where we operate, so very strong sense of purpose, which comes both by virtue of our heritage, but also the markets that we operate in you know, the markets that we operate in are really at the forefront of the political, economic and societal changes that are happening. And, and the role that we play in those changes is uh, really fundamental to our purpose. Before doing my current role, I have had almost 25 years now in, in HR, uh, largely in financial services working across uh, the globe. So I worked across markets in Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, India. I worked in the Middle East and, and worked in the UK.
0: So since we spoke in 2019, it was only three years ago, but a lot has happened in the world since then. Who would have thought we would have lived through a global pandemic, um, which quite literally changed the world of work. As someone who's been a Chief Human Resources Officer, both pre- and post-pandemic, you know, how would you say the pandemic has changed the role of the CHRO?
1: I mean, Look, the pandemic has been a real moment of reckoning uh, for CHROs across the world. And, you know, they've had to play the HR functions more broadly, but CHROs specifically have had to steer the ship hand in hand with their CEOs, making sense of a world which has been uh, in complete chaos. Uh, right? And it's been unprecedented. I know the word unprecedented has been used a lot over the last few years, but it's been an unprecedented set of changes that have happened in the world. I remember in 2019, when I spoke to you, I said that HR functions and CHROs in particular should not be in service of the top leaders in the company. In our case, the top thousand leaders in the company, but actually in service of 86,000 colleagues who uh, work in in our firm. And that has really come true. Uh, And it's not just the role for the, the entire employee base, but also the role that CHROs have had to play in the communities within which their firms operate. So, so for me, it's a, it's been really, like I said, a moment of reckoning uh, for the for the HR function. What does it mean, sort of practically? One is the idea that employees are a critical stakeholder group, pretty much in the same way as we think about customers, investors, regulators. Uh, We had spoken about it a lot in the past, but it really became quite real. So this idea that employee advocacy can be a real force for good and the role of CHROs in balancing the needs of the business and the needs of employees became quite fundamental. This balance of power, which we'll speak about uh, quite a bit. Practically, what it has meant is the power of listening, you know, actively listening to colleagues and the power of co-creation. Some of the best ideas in the pandemic in the way firms dealt with it, didn't come from boardrooms in London, Singapore, Hong Kong, New York. They actually came from the front line, and this idea of how do we co-create solutions with the workforce became really quite critical. The other thing which we saw quite a bit is shift in the ways of working. Right? You know, it's no to me the the shift that has happened in the way work gets done is not just where you work but also how you work and what you work on. So, you know, fundamentally, this idea of flexibility became at the heart of the proposition. Recognizing more than ever before the role of technology in delivering human experiences. And again, we spoke quite a bit about that in 2019, that, you know, you can deliver really distinct human experiences uh, in leveraging technology. And that really came to the forefront. I mean, imagine overnight we had 86% of our workforce working remotely. And that would just not have been possible without the kind of collaborative technologies we saw rolled out during the pandemic, ensuring nobody gets left behind. So getting inclusion at the heart of future work. And the last thing for me is reimagining the S of ESG. So traditionally, if you think about S was almost always about risk management, and a lot of S of ESG became about pro-social behavior and, and, you know, the role of HR in driving much more pro-social behavior, not just within the businesses that they operate, but within broader communities and, and society at large became became quite critical.
0: Where, where would you say the future of work is heading as as we transition to the post-pandemic world, which hopefully we are in the post-pandemic world to sort of?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I remember saying this, future of work is now, we're in the future of work. And for sort of HR practitioners like me, David, who has been, been talking about the future of work for almost a decade now, there's, there's clearly a sense that we are in it now. And there are a couple of things I will say before we move to the, the topic around skills in particular, because I do believe that's going to be at the big currency. You know, I'm a firm believer that HR that has traditionally been a custodian of jobs is going to move to becoming a custodian of skills. And uh, that, and, uh, for me, it's a really welcome change, but also it's a real opportunity uh, for, for functions to sort of reimagine uh, the role of, of HR sort of going forward. So the first thing I will say is, so what does it mean practically? I do believe the the power balance has shifted, you know, it, it is much more towards employees. You know, we talk a lot about war for talent, Actually, the war for talent is actually a war for hard skills. There's skills that are in demand and people who have the skills in demand are in a far more privileged position today to be able uh, to, to, I mean, I I use negotiate in a very positive sense, you know, to, to have much more of a bargaining power when they talk about the kind of work they want to do and how they want to do it. It's become very clear to us in all of the research that we have done to win in the war for skills. Money is important, but it's increasingly becoming a hygiene factor. Uh, you know, people are thinking about their employment proposition far more holistically, and as they are thinking about the employment proposition far more holistically, companies have to think about what are some of the big bets that they want to make as far as the, the future work is concerned in, in competing in this future work. For us. There have been a few things that it is a continuation of the work that we started pre-pandemic, but has definitely been accelerated by the pandemic. The first thing is, purpose is here to stay. I spoke about in 2019, I'll speak about it again. People want to buy from purpose-driven businesses. People want to work for purpose-driven businesses. We have found in the EVP research we have done pre-pandemic, but the scores got amplified post-pandemic is doing a job that delivers impact is as important, if not more, in certain pockets than the, the compensation level for the job. And so this idea of purpose and people finding meaning in the work is going to be really a critical part of an overall employment proposition. Flexibility is here to stay. Flexibility is not just where you work, but how you work and what you work on. Definitely uh, there they're to stay. The third big trend for us people wanting to work for companies that are happy to take a stand on broader societal issues. You know, so, so this idea that, you know, I want to work for a company and a CEO and that links back to the purpose, but it's not just hidden behind it. You know, people want to work for companies that are now very vocal in, in, in the role that they play um, in, in the world. And this thing about the move about when, how, where has led to, and this idea of flexibility has led to us thinking a, ro- a lot about how do we pivot to becoming a much more skill-based organization and like i said being a custodian of skills as compared to traditional jobs and that's coming from all of the employee listening we want to do you know people want companies to play uh, a more proactive role in reskilling upskilling them for the future making them continuing to be relevant for the future of work people want career development and growth as key parts of the employment proposition so this Uh, the the shifts that one is seeing in the world of work actually play into the move that needs to happen uh, towards skill uh, in a very concerted way.
0: In today's world of work, there is no new normal. With everything from where we work to what we need to work on constantly changing, it can be impossible to figure out how to retain, develop, deploy and adapt your workforce. So where do you go to get the answers? Probably not your HCM or another static database. You need real-time, meaningful data and a way to act fast. That's where Gloat comes in. Gloat's workforce agility platform bridges the gap between getting the information you need to make decisions and taking action. You get workforce intelligence to help you adapt and evolve your workforce while unlocking the potential of your employees with a talent marketplace. Sound too good to be true? Gloat is working at scale with the world's leading employer brands like HSBC, Novartis, and Nestle to help them cut costs, drive productivity increases, increase innovation and speed to market, and to design a future fit workforce. Find out how at gloat.com. That's G L O A T.com. Someone we both know very well, Ravin Jesuthasan and John Bradro. They, 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 you know, they published a book earlier this year. Work without jobs, and uh, and Ravin kindly contributed to an article that that we we produced recently. And he was talking. You know, we basically got to move away from 140 years. He said of learned behaviour about basing the whole way we we manage people in the organisation around jobs to to, to moving to, to skills. So it, it's, we shouldn't underplay how how big a move this is, but it's fascinating to see a growing number of organizations looking to shift towards this this skills-based a, a, approach. Deloitte, again, Susan Cantrell and Michael Griffiths have been publishing lots of good stuff around this. I know that the Standard Charter Bank is conducting a number of initiatives in this area. Can you share more about the work that you're doing, for instance, around talent mobility? Because that's got, definitely got a skills-based element to it.
1: Yeah, no, first, uh, I will do a shameless plug for Raven's book, Work Without Jobs. It's a fantastic read. And I think, as you say, it brings down this narrative strongly. It was a real wake-up call for me, you know, when I read that book. It sort of really got me thinking so much. So hopefully Ravin is listening to this uh, podcast and uh, you, you're both making a plug for his book, which is a great read. Um, I mean, I'll take a step back. I mean, we, we have made over the last few years some real inroads, and it all came from these insights that I shared on what do people expect in the future of work. And um you know I, I take a minute to talk about the journey before we get to the to marketplace because that's quite important. Our journey really started with uh with jobs, and I think it was quite important because you know if you make if you talk about skills and deconstructing jobs into skills, it is a very nebulous concept in in large legacy traditional businesses. So our journey started with the concept of jobs, but what we did was we did a really what I believe a really interesting piece of work, looking at our strategic workforce plan three years, five years, seven years, and it's a piece of work which we have refreshed every year. And I remember taking it to the board, and there were a couple of insights that came out in the plan. What came out was that over the next three to five years, almost fourteen thousand jobs, as we have today, are not going to be needed. You know, we call them sunset jobs. Mm-hmm. What it also said that we are going to need another 9,000 jobs, which are jobs that just don't exist today. And we call them sunrise job. We then did, because, you know, working in a bank, numbers are always a very uh, in- influential way of getting people, especially of CFO, to listen to you. We then did a piece of work where we said if we had to hire for these sunrise jobs and move all the sunset people, job, the sunset colleagues, out of the organization how much is going to cost the firm and it was a pretty staggering number you know so this idea that to hire into the sunrise job externally was x times more expensive than deploying somebody internally and if we are not going to deconstruct these jobs to start thinking about skills and reskill and upskill people into those skills we are going to be running but cutting a very, very big check over the next three to five years was a very, very important conversation to have. We then spoke about so what is going to be our strategy over the next couple of years to yeah. move into much more of a skill-based organization. And, and we then spoke about how do we upskill and reskill into some of these future-focused jobs. Our research was very clear. You know, it was very clear that some of the future skills are going to be a combination of technical skills and human skills, so of course, digital, data, cyber. But also empathy managing with ambiguity, thinking about leadership in very different ways, that led to us launching future skills academies and, you know we did future skills academy around technical human skills, leveraging an ai based platform so you know we, we moved away from a traditional learning management system to a much more you know intuitive hyper personalized platform where people get directed to content based on their interests, um, which was quite a big shift, but also quite a palatable shift because, you know, we were talking about skills, which everyone could could resonate with. Um, you know, we focused a lot on building a strong learning habit because we said even before we get into some of these reskilling proof of concept, we want to build a learning culture where everyone in the company is focused on future-focused skills. You know, I remember we launched our Sustainable Finance Academy and we said, the first 5,000 learners to to learn about sustainability will have a tree planted in their name. And and the the number of emails I've had from colleagues saying, you know, I've got nothing to do with sustainable finance. Well, I went and did it because I am really curious about how big the sustainability agenda is going to be to the future of banking. And it was great to get a tree planted in me. And it sounds gimmicky, Mm. but but building that culture of learning and building a, a, a culture in the firm where learning is celebrated, recognized, leaders, senior most leaders talk about skills that they don't have, but are going to be needed for the future. And they are upskilling themselves was a huge part of this journey. We then ran very directed proof of concepts, where we looked at skills adjacencies between sunset jobs and sunrise jobs. So, you know, what are the jobs that are going to go away? What are the skills that help them get reskilled into some of these sunrise jobs. We ran five five proof of concepts. We showed some real redeployment opportunities and started making this skills narrative real. At the same time, we launched our AI-backed talent marketplace because yes, you can get learning and development opportunities, you can, you know, find out the skills that are needed in some of the jobs for the future and how similar are they to the skills that you currently have? But we needed to augment that with practical real life experience. And we launched our version of an internal gig economy and our talent marketplace, where people who had pieces of work that needed to be done could put gigs, you know, people who had either those skills uh, could apply for the gig, or we encouraged people as they were going through their reskilling journey to sign up for their gigs as part of practical real life sort of experience. You didn't have to take approval from your line manager to sign up to a gig. You could do up to eight hours a week for a couple of weeks for a a few months on any of these exciting projects, which were cross geographic, could be a completely different part of the world in a different line of business. And, And that then became the practice ground for us to create that environment for people to be able to experiment with skills for the future, but also be part of really meaningful pieces of work that were going on in the firm. And how
0: how's how's that charter benefited from from this shift um, so far?
1: Well, I mean, it's been it's been phenomenal. I mean, I have to say, when we spoke about it for the first time, uh, uh, you know, piloting uh, a talent marketplace and this idea of gig economy in a in a company which is very formal and structured, so you know. David, if you are embarking on a project and you need a resource, you would typically have to make a job requisition. Your leader would have to approve. They'll have to think about budgets. It could be several months even before you start sourcing somebody for the role. And that's the sort of hierarchical setup that we we all operate in. That's the reality of the business I work work in. And when we spoke about the talent marketplace for the first time, it was a really alien concept because, you know, people said, so how does this work, right? I mean, If you post a gig, uh, you know, David posts a gig, Tanuj signs up for the gig, does Tanuj get paid more for it? No, she doesn't, right? Does Tanuj get a promotion at the end of the year? No, she doesn't. Does she get a bump up on her bonus? No, she doesn't. Why will Tanuj do it? Tanuj will do it because we have been consistently listening to our employees and the data is very clear. The data is that people come and work for us because they want an exciting place to work. They want to do purposeful work. They want to do jobs that deliver impact. And they really want the company to be focused on their career development and growth. And we genuinely believe that those were bits of our proposition or of our sort of improvement proposition. We agreed on a pilot in our business in India. In the first six months, we had almost 7,000 people who signed up and we had hundreds of gigs and some really interesting pieces of work. Post six months of pilot, we decided to take it global and We've had now um, 18 months of it being really global, where we have shown that we have unlocked two and a half million US dollars worth of productivity. We've had over a thousand gigs delivered, but more than just the quantum, I think we've got 14, 14 and a half thousand people who are actively registered on the marketplace globally now. And, you know, we are constantly looking for opportunities. But what's really important for me it's just the interesting, innovative pieces of work that have been done. So, you know, colleagues in India came up with this idea of looking at a banking solutions for our customers who are hearing impaired. And that idea came up from a colleague in India. Entire project was resourced using Talent Marketplace. And we are the first bank in India now that has a solution out in the public domain which is specifically targeted to customers who've got a a disability and are hearing impaired. So to me, it's the number of points it clicked, unlocked productivity in the company, uh, linking to EVP where people want to focus on their career development and growth, being able to really pivot the organization to skills because it won't surprise you that the skills most in demand are the most more future-focused skills. What do people need in projects? They need data scientists. You know, they need uh, communications experts. They need diversity inclusion experts. They need product designers. They need um, Scrum masters, agile coaches. So the, the the most pieces of work in demand are these future focus jobs, which links into the skills agenda, and actually it links to purpose agenda. You know, you could be, a, you know, a data scientist working as part of a, doing part of a very monotonous piece of work, but you could. For eight hours a week for several weeks, be part of a project which is making banking accessible to c- customers who are hearing impaired, and and that is fulfilling your sense of personal purpose. So t- to me, it's about bringing so many dimensions together in a, in a very seamless way.
0: Yeah, and it keeps that, yeah, I, and I suppose also for an employee perspective, it gives you that variety that you've talked about. It could be a data science and H and HR, but actually you're supporting a customer project that needs a data data scientist for a period of time, that's great because it makes you a more rounded individual, helps your career growth, maybe eventually locks up, unlocks an opportunity for you on the customer side or, 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 or vice versa. Um, and actually from an agility perspective, it's really important because things are moving so fast. As you said, you, 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 your project sometimes these projects come up unexpectedly. You need to get them completed quickly. Usually we, we would go out as an organization and, and hire people or bring contractors in that takes time, as you said, because it all needs to be approved. It's, it's more cost. You know, and here you, you're removing the cost, really, other than the cost of actually having the marketplace.
1: Absolutely. And look, like I said, and in the journey, you know, starting off with learning, reskilling, upskilling, starting with the construct of traditional jobs, but actually in a very organic way, you are bringing in the skills vocabulary into the vernacular of the company. And where we are now going is thinking about skills in all of our talent assessments. So we are moving away from past performance being a predictor of potential to looking at learning agility and skills as a, a key motivation, uh, as a key predictor for future potential. And we are introducing, have introduced in pockets the idea of a skills passport. So, you know, as you acquire skills, it actually becomes, makes you more employable. Uh, uh, and it links to that sort of talent deployment point. So, 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 so absolutely. There are so many things uh, when you talk about the cultural benefits of of um, uh, something, which you know could sound quite simple, like a marketplace. But the cultural impact of that goes much beyond uh, the projects that have been delivered uh, on the marketplace or the productivity that has been unlocked.
0: Are you an HR leader looking to make more impact with PeopleLexus? then you won't want to miss an upcoming webinar hosted by Insight222, where we'll share the key insights from our recently published annual People Analytics Trends Report, which was titled, Impacting Business Value, Leading Companies in People Analytics. This 90-minute webinar will take place on February 16, and will provide insights on what the best of the best are doing when it comes to people analytics. Our research examines the growth of the market and places a specific lens on the key characteristics of leading companies in the field, based on the findings of a survey with 184 global organisations. We will also provide guidance for leaders and companies keen on delivering more impact with people analytics. You'll have the opportunity to hear from Insight 222 CEO Jonathan Farrar and me, David Green, as we talk through the key findings of the research and the current trends in people analytics. We will be joined by Dawn Klinghoffer, one of the foremost leaders in the field, and a recent addition to the Insight 222 Board of Advisors. Dawn will provide her own industry perspectives, as well as practitioner expertise from her role at Microsoft as the Global Head of People Analytics. Don't miss out on this opportunity to stay ahead of the game and gain valuable insights from industry leaders. Register for the Insight 222 People Analytics Trends Research webinar today by visiting our website at insight222.com forward slash research webinar 2022. That's insight222.com forward slash research webinar 2022. I'd be interested to know what's the feedback been from your workforce? How, you know how have they taken to the introduction of this of this new talent marketplace? Obviously, you talked about. The pilot in india and 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 how that created a product for, for helping customers of hard of hearing you know what what are some of the other sort of feedback you've had from your workforce around talent
1: yeah and i mean david i will keep going back to 2019 because we spoke a lot in 2019 about employee experience uh you know employer experience being what companies are going to have to compete for in the future And actually, this entire conversation links to the idea of experience very strongly, because what do employees want? They want flexibility, they want agility, but they also want hyper-personalization. They don't always want to be told what to do. And both with our new learning platform, we call it Discover and Talent Marketplace, this idea of being hyper-personalized, the idea that I have a choice, right? And you you go back, legacy businesses, a lot of learning is mandatory, regulatory learning, you know, it's the company decides what I need to do versus companies having a conversation with me, which is a much more adult-adult conversation. The company is talking to me about where the world of work is shifting, companies asking my views and what is the role I want to play in the future of banking, and then creating platforms for us uh, to be able to engage with. I, I mean, Uh, Career development and growth traditionally in our business was the second lowest-rated item after comp uh, for years and years. And in the last two years, if you look at our engagement surveys, you know we 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 do continuous assessments. So we obviously do the annual engagement survey, but we also do continuous cultural assessment uh, throughout the year. The scores that have improved the most—they're still low on an absolute basis, which tells you the amount of work we need to do. But the scores that have improved the most. Is our colleague satisfaction with career development and growth inside the company. And the other thing we've been able to do is if I look at our in the rate of internal deployment versus external hiring, you know, we, we are at a firm-wide level now, sort of 45% of our jobs are placed internally and the remaining external. The number becomes higher as you go higher. Right. So, you know, at senior levels, we are almost 70-30. And actually we've seen a, a, almost a fifteen percent increase in that number in the last two two and a half years, so as you've got into invest in yourself, we give you the tools, hyper personalize you know think about career development in its broadest of sense, talk about skills for the future that's also showing in in some of the numbers, and I can very quickly cross translate that into the amount of cost it saves for the bank when I do my uh, regular catch ups with our CFO, uh, so so there is a massive commercial impact to businesses as well.
0: So, what what skills and capabilities do you think HR professionals really need to develop themselves to successfully drive this change?
1: Yeah, and on, look on this, my view hasn't changed over the last few years. If anything, it's my my resolve has strengthened even further. The first thing is data and science and analytics, right? I mean, you've got to start off with active employee listening. Um, you know, and and really being able to leverage uh, data and insights to um understand uh, what the workforce is telling, but also to segment in a way that makes sense, right? I mean, I'll give you a really interesting piece. I was with my team a couple of weeks ago in our back office centers. So we've got our processing teams that sit in India between Chennai and Bangalore. And I said to them, I said, you know, guess how many' Ask HR; these are basic routine queries that employees put into the system. Do we get every year? It's four hundred thousand ask HR yeah. queries every year. And I said, you know, now think of ourselves as product managers, where employment is our product. What would we do with these four hundred thousand queries? We would segment it to death to try and understand how it shapes our thinking around people strategy, you know, HR products. How we are engaging with with our colleagues, so this value of data, uh, insights coming from data, and how is data shaping the conversations that we are having, you know, with boards, you know, with regulators, with business leaders, with people leaders, and with the wider workforce is absolutely a critical strength. And again, David, we've done some work with you uh, in in upskilling colleagues in HR around that. But I think that's key. I spoke about HR being product managers. You need to have that design thinking, human centered design thinking, in the way you develop pro-, pro programs, you know, in the way you roll out programs, you know. So, so again, in in both at a design stage, but you know how you embed that into the business, having that design thinking, having employee experience at the heart of it is absolutely the the piece that is key. And the third thing is a lot of people say to me, "Oh, is it technology versus people?" And you know it is both and actually the power of experiences when you get the best of technology along with the best of people and i still find a lot of people in hr being quite scared of technology and you know just embracing technology thinking about the possibilities you know, we've done so much of thinking around ethics around data you know how do we ethically use data you know what does privacy mean and a lot of these topics have to become part of your day-to-day conversations within the function if we are to fully leverage the power of data and technology
0: but i guess as you said it's technology and people which i think is a really important point and if you can provide personalized better experiences to employees through using technology and data then the whole conversation around privacy becomes a lot easier even if we 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 take that legal is always a little bit behind where technology is so you're always playing catch up a little bit from a from a legal perspective particularly if you work in a regulated industry. You yeah, but, you just.
1: know, as you say, it's a fair exchange of value. You know, ultimately, it's about having very honest conversation. You know, we, we've we got a lot of insights post the pandemic, you know, leveraging Microsoft Workplace Analytics on how our colleagues are working, how are they collaborating, how much time are our leaders spending between coaching versus being in unproductive team meetings, et cetera. But as we were collecting the data, we wrote to all our colleagues very openly. And we said, look, this is what we want to use the data for. It is to make the day-to-day working for all of our colleagues much better, but you have the option to sign out if you don't want uh, your data to be shared. We had a very low single-digit percentage of our colleagues that signed out. And to me, it all comes back to fair exchange of value. If you are having a very honest and a transparent conversation about how the data is going to be used, which, of course, ensures standards around privacy and control, uh, then actually, it is an adult-adult conversation. But well, what you do with the data and how do you use that to deploy human-centered solutions is what differentiates uh, good companies from great companies, in my view. And I think that is where HR has, has a massive opportunity and role to play.
0: I know there'll be a lot of HR, well, I hope there'll be a lot of HR professionals listening to this episode of the podcast. I mean, generally speaking, most of the people that listen are, like you, working in HR in, in, in organizations around the world. Um and they're particularly of huge interest in this skills-led approach that, that, that we talked about earlier. But, of course, without buy-in from the board and senior executives, it, it's not going to happen or it's going to certainly be very, very difficult. How did you, as a, as a CHRO, go, go about getting buy-in from, from leadership for this skills-based approach to, to stand at standard charge? Because as we talked about, it's not easy and it does take effort.
1: No, look, it, it is not easy. And you know, it is about rewiring and replumbing a business that's been run in a particular way for decades. Right? Like I said, in our case, for 160 years, it's not easy. And uh, that's not uh, a sense I want to give to uh, to people who are listening to this podcast. There are a couple of things that you know we have deployed, uh, leveraging our experience. The first thing is start talking in a language that they understand. You know, the first time when we initiated the conversation, we did start off with jobs. Um, um, and a strategic workforce plan, which was based on our traditional jobs. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's important to start off with uh, a, in a language that people understand before you start talking about concepts, which might feel a bit more nebulous to you. So start with something that people are comfortable with, well-versed with. I'm a firm believer that you've got to build a business case and and articulate the economic impact of this change. And uh, you know, I will say this, just never needs to be 100% accurate right it, but the moment you start thinking about the commercial opportunity in all of this which is what we did you know trying to you know quantify the commercial opportunity in 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 moving to thinking about future skills in a structured way i, I think that to me was uh incredibly important to do that senior sponsorship is key the first five proof of concepts we did which were reskilling proofs of concept we had five very visible senior business leaders sponsoring each one of them and you know, getting passionate about it and talking about it and, and, and really, really being vested in that success of those experiments. And, and that to me was, 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 was quite key. Experimentation, right? I mean, do I believe that we can have 100% of our organization move away from the traditional construct of jobs into skills over the three years? No. Do I want it to be 100%? Perhaps not, right? I mean, there are certain jobs that lend themselves much more uh, uh, to moving to a a skills based architecture and choose the first few areas to experiment quite wisely. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but it's largely technology, product development where these things happen, uh, you know, are are easier to sort of roll out. So choose the areas that you want to experiment quite carefully. And the thing, the last, and for me, the most important thing is, Co create with your colleagues. There is, I I say, employee advocacy can be a real force for good. And a lot of the change in companies is not always going to come top down, it's going to come bottom up. We had to do that experiment in India, leveraging a talent marketplace to convince some of our senior most leaders that when you democratize talent, demand and supply of talent, using technology, it unleashes productivity, makes people happier, and fulfills the purpose. But that came from the power bottom up, uh, as opposed to necessarily top down. So this idea of how do you co-create with your colleagues and engage with them would always, for me, be at the heart of uh, a rolling out differentiated people and culture strategies.
0: Very important. So you've already accomplished a lot in in this in this change. Very impressive. You know, moving towards the skills-based organization. You know, you're recognized as one of the leading companies in driving this change. You know, and, and I think it's great that, that as an organization you're sharing some of that work with the wider community because so I think that helps inspire others to 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 maybe do what they know they need to do. Um I'm curious what what's the sort of next step or, or, or steps in this transition?
1: Well, I mean the two things that I'm very, very passionate about are the first is how do we get some of the reskilling done in very, very diverse talent pools. You know, so one of the things that we are looking at in our wealth management business, for example, where a lot of the reskilling has focused on people who got wealth background. And wealth management is an engine of massive growth for us. We are now taking this idea of you can deconstruct that into jobs to tap into a much broader talent base. And that's to me hugely exciting because it's a big engine of growth. What we are saying is, let's just Throw away the conventional wisdom on where we hire people as wealth managers. Let's go back to the and you know we, we, we're going to launch a really big academy which is all focused on skills. We don't talk about the jobs, but actually creates the sustainable pipeline of talent uh, by leveraging a much wider pool of people who are coming in from all walks of life. And I think that for me is 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 where we want to do. Just expand the pool of talent that we consider for some of our big revenue generating roles. Uh, to stop thinking about those jobs and deconstruct them into, into skills, and we are doing that with wholesale banking, especially around areas of sustainability. You know, that's going to be what are skills needed to be a, a banker uh, focused on sustainability, and how do we make that sort of accessible to a much wider pool? So just uh, expanding the talent pool is key. The second one, which is the biggest societal piece for me, is that. The gap between education and employability is becoming wider and wider. You see the latest Edelman Trust. It says that workforce globally is looking for their companies to take the lead in the skills agenda and the reskilling for the future of work. And their confidence companies playing that role is significantly more than you know policymakers, educational institutions, or governments in, in most big markets in the world. And to me, what is the role Stanchart can play in bridging that gap in partnership with educational institutions is something that is my personal purpose. You know, when you, when you look at sort of sustainable finance, you look at digital data, you look at the fact that when we did our strategic workforce plan, we realized that without taking some corrective action, the percentage of women in our overall workforce will go down by three and a half percent over five years, simply because there are not enough women in Sunrise jobs. There are not enough, you know, data scientists, you know, technologists, you know, cybersecurity specialists, or you know, sustainable sustainable finance specialists who are women. And to me, the big aspiration is how do we take the work that we are doing, and in partnership with educational institutions, we make the impact of this work in broader societies and communities within which we operate, especially in markets like Africa, in in Africa and in Asia.
0: So this is the last question, Tony. So this is one we're asking everyone on, on this series of, of the podcast. And how should a company get started? I mean, you've given a few clues. So you might just well want to bring and summarize it. How should a company get started to successfully shift from a focus on jobs to instead a, a primary focus on, on skills?
1: I mean, the first thing I will say is get skills into the vernacular of the company. Don't shy away from talking about it. You know, I, I feel because people don't know how to bell the cat uh, that people are a little bit nervous about even bringing that into the vernacular of the company. So I think it's quite important to build it to the vernacular of the company. Uh, as I said previously, build a business case around jobs. I think the commercial case around the move from jobs to skills is really quite important to to get senior leaders to scale the challenge for them. Uh, experimentation, co-creation with colleagues, uh you know, starting small, but then scaling for impact are, are one of the things that are going to be uh, quite important. I think democratizing access to opportunities, you know, be it leveraging some version of um, a marketplace that we have done or looking at uh, at learning differently is going to be quite important because, you know, you can't replace the structured jobs, that approach that we have had and the way org design has been done in companies Overnight to move to to skills, but what you can do is democratize access and opportunities, and by doing that, you know you do have a, a lot of the energy that gets built within the organization.
0: Well, that's a perfect place to to end our conversation today, Tanish. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders Podcast for the second time. Um, can you let listeners know how they can connect with you on social media, find out more about your work at Standard Charter? Because I know you share some of what you're doing on LinkedIn and, and other forums.
1: So no, thanks, David. Thanks again for having me. I am on LinkedIn, Tanuj uh, Kapila Shrami, and uh, you uh know, do try and uh, be active there and share some of the work and our experience, both good and bad, uh, using uh, uh, our, our, our my LinkedIn handler. I'd also encourage people to go to sc.com. We've got some great employee stories out there. You know, a lot of it is about listening to the experience of our colleagues in their own voices. And there's some great talent marketplace stories in there as well. So so go and spend some time on sc.com as well.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks, Sanush. thanks so much for do- thanks, David. doing this in person as well. It's always, it's always nice to go back to pre-pandemic days when we used to do all our podcast episodes in person. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you again to Tanush Kapilashrami for another great conversation. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And you can sign up for our weekly newsletter too by going to myhrfuture.com. For now, have a great day and see you soon for another episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Take care.